make noise, 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 make noise. So let's start. Let's start here, man. You are an icon. You are a political activist to me. You are you are a trendsetter, a trailblazer, everything, man. You've done a little bit of everything. I don't care whether you have the title or not. You are you are the mayor of Miami, Uncle Luke. What else? What what else is there to say about you, man? You've been doing this for a long, long time, brother. First and foremost, I want to thank you for coming on the show. How are you? Hey, man, I'm great, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. I'm always tuned in, checking you out. You know, uh, you have some uh, very interesting people on and some interesting topics, but you uh, you let the people know. So, you know, I, I just appreciate being on here. I, I, I definitely appreciate it. Tiana! Hold on one second, Luke. Tiana, I need you to bring me my, my laptop. My, my, my computer just failed. I don't know if it's you, Luke, but my computer just failed. I, I don't know. Out of nowhere, it just failed. It's over. So let's start here. I'm, I'm trying to do it from my head, man. How did you get involved with the two live? What was the story behind that? Well, the story behind that was, you know, I was a promoter. You know, I, I, I was one of, you know, I was probably the biggest DJ in Miami. You know, I started off DJing and uh, we used to do parties. You know, we, we would bring down artists. We was like the first first group to bring down hip-hop artists from New York as well as mm -hmm. California. You know, I brought down Mantronics. I brought down T. Rock. Uh, I brought down Original Concept. Uh, you name it. Jazzy J. You name it. The whole nine yards. Uh, and then we started bringing down groups from Cali. And so Two Live Crew was on, on this record label named uh, Makola Records. And they came down, you know, just like every other group that came down that I brought down to uh, perform at the skating rinks where we would be having parties at or the beach parties or something like that. You know, they all all had the same story. They weren't getting paid by the record company. And so, you know, they had a distribution deal with this company called Makola Records, which every group in Cali was signed up, whether it was NWA or you name it, they all were signed up to uh, Makola Records and but it was more like a distribution type situation. And them dudes was like, hey man, we trying to do our own thing. We trying to do some records. So I immediately tried to shop them around. And uh, when I shopped them around, ain't nobody wanted them. You know, I ain't had no uh, aspiration to be in the music business, but uh, you know, I just wanted to be a big time promoter, go from DJ to promoting. And uh, once people start saying no, they ain't want to be, they ain't want to be bothered with them. Then I just took it upon myself and say, Say fuck it. I'm just going put the record out myself, not knowing what I was doing, and just did just did it like that. So for me, I didn't know that they came from California. I had no idea. Was Brother Marquise from California too, or 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 just one of them? Well, the thing is, they were in the military. Uh, two of them was in the military. Two Live Crew was originally Yuri V. Lot, uh, Mr. Mix, uh, uh, which is David Hobbs. And Chris Wong Wong. Chris Wong Wong is from uh, New York. David Hobbs is from uh, San Bernardino. 
and uh, Yuri Vilot, you know, which he did conscious music. If you look at the first two Live Crew single, you know, one side of it was beat, beatbox and the other side of it was revolution. Um, mm. and, and the two rappers did two different things. Um, and as far as Brother Marquise, Brother Marquise came after Yuri Vilot got out of, out of the group. So when the group, you know, uh, linked up with me, you know, I was like, you can't be just like everybody else. It's too difficult uh to uh to get in the game like that so you know we just started doing Miami bass and uh sampling dolomite and Leroy skillet and all them and yuri <laughs> did not want to be a part of that so mm -hmm. yuri was like yo i'm a conscious rapper i don't i don't vibe with the, the explicit lyrics you know basically never heard of it you know uh, uh and same thing like i say chris was from new york and then marquise was from upstate new york but he was living in uh, Alabama. And so when Yuri got out of the group, you know, uh, Mr. Mix uh, made a suggestion to bring uh, uh, Brother Marquise in the group. Now, you did major numbers back then. You did, it, you did it all out of your trunk. Do you think it would be easier or harder to do what you were doing back then now with streaming and all of that? I think it would, I think it'd be, I think it'd be easier right now uh because of the screen because of the streaming i mean the streaming give leave gives you an opportunity you know like for instance you know i i i'm uh jumping back in the music business you know as far as developing new artists and so you know going back in anything you got to do a little bit of research and the research mm -hmm. that i've been doing you know with some of these major companies you know guys who used to work for me now they have vps and presidents and i'm like yo what's the you know what's the deal now you know and it's more like okay TikTok uh is a major force if you got a, you know a couple million uh hits on TikTok, five million or something like that on instagram those are the people that these uh folks look at but you know so they they, they basically told me you know what's going on right now is no developing of an artist you know it's all if you're hit on instagram you know, then you are you are hit. They sign you up, give you a bunch of money, but they don't still don't know how to develop the artist. Uh, so, I think you can still do it better because if you know how to develop an artist, you develop them through the social platform, and it allows you to go through the world. Even though back then we were selling we were selling records, you know, and I was doing it different than everybody because I manufactured. And I distributed the music myself. You know, I went down to the pressing plant, pressed the record up, sold it to the distributor. The distributor sold it to the uh, to the uh, stores and the one stops. And uh, I was we, we were basically getting all the money versus a percentage of the money. And so the difference is now, back then you'd have to go to Medium, which I'm pretty sure you've been to, uh, where you had to go cut your worldwide deals and things like mm -hmm. that. Uh, or you go to a new music seminar and cut you some worldwide de international deals. <laughs> now you're automatically international when you when you uh, when you put a record out on you know on whatever platform it is. Automatically goes through you know all these different streaming services and as well as these sales. It, it goes worldwide right now. So you know uh, I, I think you know you can still do it. You know back then I we broke in. 
because we were doing something totally different. We were doing explicit lyrics, and pretty much nobody really heard of that, and then nobody heard of the girls getting on the videos, you know, dancing at the beach, and the album covers with girls at the beach, and we laying down in the sand, so it was a lot different. Now, now, and that was gonna be my second question. Did you know what you were really doing or was this just kind of you having fun times and just enjoying yourself? Or did you have an actual plan to sell sex and, and, and explicit lyrics? Yeah, it was a plan. Everything was planned out because, again, keep in mind, I'm the guy that's bringing down all the hip-hop artists. So I, I, you know, I'm the guy who's introducing Miami to hip-hop because at right. the time, you know, when I DJ, you know, we were playing, uh, you name it. We were playing Earth, Wind and & Fire and Herbie Hancock and stuff like that. There wasn't no such thing as as, as uh, hip-hop back then. So we started introducing everybody to hip-hop. And at the same time, I'm bringing these guys down. So I'm analyzing the business. I'm analyzing the, the fact that, you know, New York is where it's at. That's, that's hip-hop. You know what I'm saying? And so now... If you were a guy coming from the South, which there was no such thing as hip hop in the South at all. You know, uh, if you were going to be into this business from the South standpoint, you know, you would have to do something different. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, our music is a little faster. You know, we, you know, we as a DJ, you tend to uh, speed the record up, uh, you know, and you add some reggae into it. And you sped up everything to uh, at least a hundred and uh, 30 beats a minute and most records was 90 beats a minute and uh, mm -hmm. so we sped it up and so I said okay uh, if we're going to do music from Miami it's going to have to have a lot of bass in it because that's our DJ thing you had to have a lot of bass and then the music has to be fast at least 120 beats to 130 beats a minute so we did that and then now the difference between, be, be, the difference between us and and uh, and KRS one anybody we gotta do something different. The concept gotta be different. So me and Mr. Mix linked up and say, okay, we both had a love for uh, comedy, uh, black comedy. You know, Leroy Skillet, Unesta, Dolomite, and all those folks. So we didn't say, okay, instead of sampling James Brown, we gonna sample Dolomite and Leroy Skillet and. Unaster and all these curse words, and and that's what we did. We did that on on these hundred and thirty beats a minute songs, and on top of it, dances are incorporated into it. So you know, I, I my D, my DJ group was ghetto style DJs. Every weekend, we would create a dance, and so like one of the dancers throw the dick, and so they the the guys would throw the D, and then the girls would throw the P, and then. And then uh, we had Ghetto Nasty, so we then we had Ghetto Jump. So so the first record we made was Throw the D, you know, mm -hmm. uh, describing the actual dance, and people start vibing to it. And before you know, uh, it became a big hit, and kids came from down here, took it back to their colleges, and then they turned people on to it. Like this is what we listening to in Miami. And the rest was history. Listen. Throw That D was a hit in New York. I don't know if you know that, but it was a hit in New York. And, and of course, Doodle Brown and all that, and, you know, the videos, and, and, and it just went to somewhere else. But I want to move forward to Move Something, because Move Something was the album that kind of got you noticed by them, by them people. You think yeah. you noticed by them Is it true that somebody was actually arrested for selling a copy of that album? 
Oh, yes, was uh, that was that that album. Was it nasty? Is it want to be nasty? Is it want to be? Uh, yeah, uh, a gentleman named uh, Mr. Friedman. He owned the record store in Broward County, and then the sheriff came in and told him, "Look, you can't sell this record because it's deemed obscene." Which the album was deemed obscene, uh, uh, and uh, he sold it anyway. He was like, "No, nah, I'm gonna sell it anyway." You know, I don't care. It's a free country, so they locked him up. You know, uh, put him in jail. He eventually got out. You know, and the same thing with us. You know, when they deemed the record obscene by the federal judge, uh, Gonzalez, we went and I said the same thing. Fuck it. We're going to go perform the record in Broward County and go to jail because, you know, we feel like that that the uh, it was in violation of our free speech, which eventually we ended up going to get the record, going to get the uh, the ban of the record overturned. And so... That's why if we would have left it on the on the books and we, we didn't fight it, then everything that you hear right now, cuss, guys cussing in the record, then that would have been actually uh, a violation of the law because it would have been precedent set and it would have still been on the books, you know, from the federal standpoint. And then that would trickle down to the to the states or any rapper would have got on there, a singer, start singing about you know, uh, using cuss words, then they, they record could have got banned. So I thought it was important to get that off so people can be able to do what they're doing right now today. Okay, so now, at the point that you go and do the record and get arrested, are you saying to your, are you taking it as a joke? Or are you, or, or are you, you know, what are you thinking in your mind? Are you saying this is a joke? Or you, you starting to take it serious like they on my back? What was going through your mind? What was going through my mind? I mean, it was like, you know, I, I you know, I always said that. I, I was like, if anybody is, if anybody is prepared for this, is me, you know, because of how I grew up. You know, my my uh, dad Jamaican and my mom Bahamian and and her her people's. You know, you know, it's always politics talking in the house. So I kind of rate was raised around politics and black history, and so I kind of you know, knew that, you know, look, it ain't really, you know, it, it, it's more of, it's more of, uh, it's a lot of things that's got something to do with what's going on. And so when, 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 the, when the good folks came at me, I was like, you know, look, I'm making too much money. You know, my uncle always told me, you know, when a black man make too much money in this country and he has a voice and he's not controlled by the white man at the end of the day, you know, they're going to try to shut that black man up. And normally they use the court system to try to take all his money in the court. And uh, so I was I was kind of prepared for the controversy, you know, because I looked at it and when it went on, it was like, you know, they got Andrew Dice Clay saying worse stuff than we're saying, you know, in the records that was done before us, the Leroy Skillet, the Dolomites, the Red Fox, all that stuff like that. That was already put out before us. So, if you're going to ban something, you would ban that right then. So, you know, we weren't affiliated with nobody, you know, as far as no major record label or anybody that could back us or anything like that. So, you know, I knew it was coming on different fronts, you know, and they used it. They used exclusive lyrics as as a way to try to get at us. But then at the same time, you had hip hop at that time was now crossing over into the into the white neighborhoods and the white households and things like that. So do you think the motivation to arrest you, the motivation to shut this down is because there were people that were 
not from the hood that was starting to dance and twerk and do all that kind of stuff? Is that why you think they got at you? Yeah, I mean, when you had when you had it when you see it was a you know right at that time, Run Run DMC and everybody else was crossing over. So then now you have these white families, you know, uh, parents like, why y'all playing this black music? You know, and at the same time, you know, uh, now you have us come through there with all this explicit lyric in the hip hop music, you know, and so now this is going in the house, you know, and and so, the, you know, white parents, you know, start freaking out, sending letters. And then what ended up happening is you had Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, uh, who ran for president, she created this list, put put me, uh, Ice Cube, uh, some rock and roll artists on there, Nirvana. She created this list uh, to, to ban all of us. So she went through all these, you know, different, you know, Christian coalitions to try and get us banned. So then when we went to a different city, you know, they would mess with us. Uh, so at the end of the day, you know, I was the right guy, you know, because I already know my history and I know how, how the how the system actually works when it comes to a black man uh, being able to uh, have the same rights as a white man. Now, now, people, just so you understand, all of the twerking that you're doing, all the booty shaking you're doing, all of that comes from that man right there. He was really <laughs> the first to kind of break twerking and doing basically what people do in a strip club on records and for everybody to see. So if you twerk or you drop down and get your ego on or whatever you do in the club, <laughs> thank him for that. Thank him for that. Now, of course, this whole situation was political. Who was this move ordered by? Was it ordered by the governor? Was it maybe a suggestion from the president? Where do you think it really came from? I know you said Tipper Gore, but where do you really think that the initial thing came from? Where the initial thing came from uh, you, it was a combination of a couple things, right? Because it, it, you had you had the music industry number one. So you got to you got to remember, I'm selling a million records out of the trunk of my car, you know. And then I bought a little skating ring, but we DJ on the weekends, and it was the office in the day. So now I'm taking away sales from the music industry right now, mm. and I'm not affiliated with anybody. So you had that push of Man, he's taking that. He's taking sales away from us that we normally sell uh, on on another artist. And, and who is he with? So you had a push from that end. Then you had a push from, like I say, the typicals and the focus on the family who who were able to reach the governor, you know, of Florida, of Florida at the time, and the sheriff of Broward County, Nick Navarro, and the president, the vice president. Dan Quell. So when you look at when you look at these stories, you'll see Dan Quell making a, a comment about the two live crew. Oh, that should be banned. Uh, you'll you'll see um, you know the Governor Martinez, and we actually made a song about him, like "Fuck Martinez." You know, uh, made a song about him. So you had the governor coming after us. Then you had all these state attorneys around the country. So it was a big, big movement. I mean, it was to the point where you know. <laughs> I had, a, I had a, uh, a license to use Luke Skywalker records and not use the character Luke Skywalker. And then uh, George Lucas actually reneged on that and he sued me. I had to pay him like 
a half a million dollars and another couple hundred thousand dollars in attorney's fees. Uh, uh, so, and it was all based on these organizations pushing him, hey, look, how you let him use the, the name and all these different things. And so, you know, it was coming from everywhere. But the main thing was the fact that hip hop was transferring. It was it was crossing over into these white households and these white folks did not want it. You know, and, and, and I say the, the music industry itself, you know, the music industry t- traditionally gives money to a uh, Democratic Party. And so, you know, they're giving millions of dollars to, to these folks. And they like, hey, look, you got to stop this dude here because he's changing the whole scope of the music business. You know. And this is something that I say to all my people that are on all the time. They know me to say this. People who are politicians do not work for voters. They work for donors. So usually if you want to come in and make a change, if it's a new guy that doesn't know anything, maybe he works, he works for the voters. Maybe somebody who's fresh in the business. But anybody who's seasoned, they work for the donors. So now you go to court. What is your defense in court? What, what, what do you use as your defense? Because you got away. You were exonerated. So what did you use? Well, it's two cases. I mean, we had two cases. Uh, and people, people, people are more familiar with the, uh, with the case, uh, the Supreme Court case. It was Acuff Rose versus Luther Campbell. Uh, that's when, that was a parody. And that case was whether parody was protected by the First Amendment. Or not, and so that was the song we did. Pretty Woman, we did a parody, uh, and we ended up going through all these district courts of appeal. Then we ended up at the Supreme Court again, spent a lot of money because, again, that was a case about hip hop, it was more, it was about you know whether or not parody was protected by the First Amendment. It was about hip hop because everybody from Weird Al Activist to Bobby Jimmy, you name it, they was already doing parodies. They do parodies mm-hmm. every every Saturday night live. That's a parody. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, we became the poster boy uh, uh, for parodies, and I'm getting sued. So again, that was a I, I looked at it as an attack on hip hop, and then we eventually ended up. Uh, winning the case in the uh, Supreme Court, uh, which took us all the way there, which is a very difficult thing to do, is win in the Supreme Court, especially when you got a guy named Clarence Thomas. Uh, uh, all of his con- controversy, one of his first uh, cases that he heard was our case. And then now one of the judges who's on is in the Supreme Court bench. She was actually one of my lawyers in the case. So so the other case again was the uh the banning of of the uh nasties they want to be and that was based on the actual lyrics. You know, so it was coming from everywhere. Whether these guys could do parody, whether you know, we want to attack the parody part of it, we want to attack the the lyrics, we'll attack every artistical thing that you can imagine from a hip hop rec- perspective or uh, record, and I mean the, the the I mean I guess to answer your question, it was, you know, we use a test on all the cases, a Miller test, you know, and a Miller test um, is a three prong test, and that test is, is there any strip clubs? Uh, is there any adult bookstores? Is there any uh, adult video uh, uh, store? <laughs> is there any other music? Like like that in the uh, in the vicinity of where this record, <laughs> where this music is being uh, banned at, and so we were able to show that easy. Playboy Channel, 
dope bookstore right down the street from the courthouse, Andrew Dice Clay. And so we were able to uh, win that case because that let people know this is a part of society. And so that Miller test was able to help us uh, win the case and prevail. When you did Nasty As I Want to Be cover, when I saw that cover, I, the first thing I said was, I just remember looking at, I was, I was, who gave you the idea to do that? Whose idea was it to do that? And you don't think that that's the thing that pissed them off? Well, let me tell you, back then, back then, you know, uh, again, you know, everything, everything I came up with, everything I came up with was, was I'm showing you what we do in Miami. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? You know, I, you know, I go, I go to New York back then. You had stickers on the trains and break dancing and these type of things, and that's what, that's what you did in New York. You know, you did a little bit of, you know, Philly, uh, everything up north. So I was like, okay, we're gonna be all Miami. And so this is what we do. You know, girls go to the beach. We hang out on the beach. Everybody's basically half naked, you know, around here to to other people who are not at the beach on a regular basis. So I was like, okay, you know what? We're going to do an album cover. We're all going to lay down. The girls going to have a thong on, which is natural around here. But I know somebody in Boise, Idaho, or somebody in, you know, you, you know somewhere else, they're like, oh, be like, oh, shit. And so the ideal, because again, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing this on my own. I can't compete with the majors, but how can I compete, compete is with the appearance. So we're going back to the, to, to, to the business and the concept and a uh, 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 question that you asked me. Yeah, I had to put, I put those, uh, I put the covers, I made the covers real edgy because I know I'm not going to be able to inspect uh uh, in downtown records, I'm not gonna uh, 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 peaches. I'm not gonna be able to get that big banner because they got Fat Man Scoopers uh, record label and bought the whole fucking record store, and he's all over the place. He got the big standups and all, and I can't, I can't really afford that. But then I gotta, I gotta make sure I have a cover that when they go in the store to go get the new Fat Man Scoop album because they did all this big promotion around it and everybody's lined up to go in the store and I made sure the title was somewhere similar to whatever the new release was so my record would actually sit next to that record that everybody's going to buy. So then when you walk by, you looking for Fat Man Scoop album, but then you're like, oh, shit. Here, here it is. <laughs> and then you grab it and you turn the and you turn it over, and you look at the titles, and the titles are like, "Hey, we want some pussy, face down, ass up, uh, put it in the buck." And then you looking at the titles like, "Oh shit, I, I got a fat man scoop, but I got to get this right here. Right. <laughs> I got to come got, back for that joint. I got to come back and get it." Every what's going on, Bryant McKinney, what's what's going on? Of course, we got like football players in here. And you know, I know you know Ed Reed. I know you know Brian McKinney. Um, I'm going to talk about your coaching later on. Here's where you go into the Hall of Fame automatically to me. You are the first group, the first album to ever have parental advisory sticker on it. Was that your idea? Did the government put it on you? What happened? How did that well, have taken place? Well, what I did, I, I created this sticker, and, and the reason why I created the sticker, and 
and how I came up. You, because again, the music we know was doing explicit lyrics, and we know the intent was not to um, uh, for kids to get it. I didn't want kids to get the records. You know, we on there talking about throw the dick and all that, and uh, so you know we was getting letters from from PTAs and all these different families and saying, you know, all these different schools and organizations saying my kids getting the record. You know, what what can you do? So I thought about what they do at the movies. And, you know, at the movies, they have a parental advisory sticker saying this movie is not for uh, nobody under 17. So I took that kind of concept. And then at, I, I took that concept and I created the sticker based on what I saw in the movies. And so that's why you got that sticker. And then I said, you know what? I'm gonna put this sticker on, on the record, uh, and let people let the record stores know that the record contains explicit lyrics. So we then put the sticker on the record, created it, put it on the record. Then we call all the record stores because again, it, I, you know, I'm different than everybody else. You know, a lot. Of, you know, most people uh, say they're a record company, but they're not really a record company because. A record company is when you when you manufacture and you distribute it and your marketing and your radio promotion and you're doing all these different things. So I'm I'm everything. I'm the distributor, the manufacturer, and all that. So I gotta I create the album covers and put what I want to put on the cover. So we and then I have a, a staff of people calling record stores at the same time. So what we did we said okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna create two different versions of the song. So that's, we basically started that too. Most, you know, most people don't realize that, you know, I was like, I'm just trying to be proactive. You know, let's do a clean version and a dirty version. And the clean version is what you hear on the radio uh, and the dirty version is what they hear in the club. So we put clean, dirty, and then we put the sticker on there and we told all the record stores, hey, look, this is what the deal is. You know, uh, don't sell the kids this. You know, no different than you're not selling a kid a beer or a pack of cigarettes or something like that because they was already accustomed to doing that. Now, now, my question is, you since you created that sticker, does the record industry now pay you, you know, for that, for the use of that artwork or because you're the one who created it? Shouldn't you be getting a little something off that? I I hey, I should I should you know back then I mean I was just moving fast I didn't even patent the thing I should have patented it. I should have did my handle my business and made sure that I you know copywriting it and patented it and all and so basically no I don't I don't I don't get any uh, revenue from it people just use it I guess it's probably uh, considered now as intellectual property uh, like everything else around here. Uh, well, and, and people, again, the reason why I actually went through the entire chronological order of what he's done, you have to understand the man is a trailblazer. The things that he has done changed into in music. It changed music. It didn't just change hip-hop. It changed music. Now, a rock group has to have parental advisory on it. A reggae group, parental advisory. I mean, freedom of speech, all these different things. So now you turn around and you start running for mayor. I wanted that to happen so bad. I was so wanting you to be mayor. Why did it not work? Why did it not work? Uh, well, the thing is, let me tell you, in Miami, it's a heavy Cuban population, you know, Latino population here, you know, and... Uh, I was running in a special election, you know, and I, I looked at it and I said, you know what, 
uh, it's a win-win situation, you know, and why is it a win-win situation? It's because I'll create a base of voters. You know, if I lose, you know, which, you know, if I lose, then I lose. But then what I'm going to do is I'm going to be able to educate everybody in different communities when I go do debates with the other candidates about the struggles and the issues of the African-American community and the things that, that we, we, we want in our community. So that's a win for me to go into uh, Bell Harbor our little Havana, our little Russia, and, and explain to them like, hey, look, black people don't want nothing for free. You know, we, you know, we, I want your vote, but at the same time, you know, we all live in Miami together. And what happens in, in, in Liberty City, our overtime, and what happens in Bell Harbor, all that affects all of us at the end of the day because that flash on CNN is a whole bunch of murders uh, in Miami, no different than what happens in Chicago. So I was able to be able to do talk to those people but then at the same time, build a uh, build a voters base, you know, uh, build, build a base of people, of constituents that if I'm not the king, I damn sure could be the king maker. So right now, yes. right now, I, I'm, uh, you know, every time it's an election for mayor, when they poll, I poll anywhere from, uh, you know, one or two because I was able to uh, get those, get that, get that that serious base of people and that continuous base of people. And then to this day right now, you know, every candidate, whether they run for mayor, uh, commission, they ask for my, for my endorsement because my base of, my base of people are young, black, white, green, purple. They're, they're, they're consistent about voting. So like yesterday, if you saw my Instagram, I, I endorse uh, uh, Mayor Suarez after, you know, uh, Commissioner Suarez to be the next mayor. Uh, the race starts uh, August 18th, but at the same time, I'm going to have to endorse other candidates, whether it's the state attorney and other commissioners, because that base of voters, you know, the moms and the dads who depend on uh, who ain't got time to look at the news or who ain't got time to go to City Hall uh, or vet these candidates, you know, I, they, they depend on me uh, vetting them and, and giving them the, the best advice. Now, now, did the DNC ever come to you? Did they ever come to you and say, listen, we want to work with you, or, or they never kind of, they never touched you? What, what was the story with that? Well, I, I mean, they've came to me a couple of times, but, you know, I try to stay, I try to stay away from party affiliation. You know, I'm a card-carrying Democrat, yeah. You know, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I look at it like this, you know, I look at it like this and, and uh, you know, I saw your interview with the young lady and I posted white while you were doing it. Uh, uh, I, I, I try to stay away from party affiliation because I think it's, it, you know, neither party has did anything for the African-American people. You know, it's it's like we need to be, we, we need to just don't get caught up in what mama want us to do but then at the end of the day look at each candidate and, and and look at the candidate and say yeah this person uh i'm feeling this person this person is gonna do the right thing for black people uh for our community i mean it ain't no brown and and yellow and all kind of colors when it comes to me you know it's what you gonna do for black people because we've been we've been left aside and we've been left out to dry uh on so many situations so you know, when I look at the different parties, I'm looking at the best candidate, the best person who I trust that's going to do the right thing. 
you know, uh, for African-Americans, you know, for our communities, because we, again, you know, we don't look for no handout. We're looking for, we, we're looking for the playing field to be even. And uh, we haven't been getting that, you know, and I, I you know, I, I look at it from that standpoint. So when I go out, you know, I don't ask a person, you know, are they a Republican, are they a Democrat? You know, I, I ask them a series of different questions and then I look at what their track record was, what you have been doing, you know what I'm saying? So, I, and, and that's, you know, especially when it comes to local politics, the national mm -hmm. stuff, I mean, when it comes to the president, it's obvious, you know, I, you know, I don't, me and anybody else in the world that's, you know, that's screwed on tight, you know, we wouldn't be messing with no Trump, you know, uh, Biden, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a great, uh, he, he's, it's just like Hillary, he's the, he's better than what we have, you know, right now, you know, and so I, I look at it from that standpoint, but local politics is the most important, and I want people to know that. You got to be involved with the local politics because that affects the schools that your kids are going to. That's, that affects your property taxes. That affects your parks, uh, the businesses, what businesses are coming in, what businesses going out. And then some places you got to vote for the sheriff and, and some places you got the mayor uh, picks the sheriff. And then you got judges. You know, we always talk about, you know, not getting a fair treatment inside uh, in the courthouse. Well, you got to vote for these judges. You can't be you know, lame to the fact that some of these people uh, control our destiny. You know, and people, I'll be, I'll be the first to say I follow Luke and I, I watch a lot of stuff that he does. And that was going to be my, my question. He answered it. Local politics. He did a, a, po he did a post what, yesterday or the day before about local politics and why it's important and breaking it down. You may not be able to influence things on the big scale, on the macro, but where you live is very important. And Killer Mike came on here and said the same thing. And I just want to I want to back up what he said. Where you are is what you can be directly involved with. So if you don't like the prosecutor and he's done things you don't like, get somebody to run against him. If you don't like what the judge did, make sure the judge is not in there. And, and those are the things that we can fix. So knowing Miami is an insider, what does Miami really need help with, in your opinion? My, Miami needs Miami um, Miami needs help from the standpoint. I, you know, it, it's you know, like I, I I did a I did a post the other day. I got upset when I saw um, Diddy and Queen Latifah and Khaled. And these guys uh, and girls, you know, and I love all them, all them, I love them to death. But then I, I saw them, like, basically endorse a candidate uh, in Miami. You know, and I love the lady to death, too. She's great. But then, you know, I, I, I told them, and I, and I tell everybody, if, I'm, if, if Scoop want my support uh, on, on a candidate in New York, I'm a call if, if I if I want to endorse a candidate, I have a candidate step to me from New York and say, Luke, I want your support. The first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna call Scoop. I'm gonna call up somebody that lives in New York to say, Hey, look, you know, who is this guy? What is this guy all about? Before I jump on something because everybody else is jumping on it because of some Hollywood move. Because at the end of the day, that that candidate, if that candidate ain't experienced enough, then that candidate can hurt the district that you're serving. You know, because they're not experienced enough, uh, and, and I would want to know that. And so, you know, 
when when you ask the question, I mean, what what we need, we need we need good leadership. And the best part about it right now, we have some bright people that's running, and and we have a commissioner, a young guy that came out of my youth program, which is our thirtieth year. Uh, he he's a sitting commissioner, city of Miami, and now he's going to the county. We need him to win. We need. Um, we need this other young lady who's running for state attorney. You know, and again, people don't realize they always, everybody want the cop to get put in jail or the cop to get charged. And you need to understand that most cities, the, the, you there's a state attorney race and you have to vote for the state attorney. If you get the wrong state attorney in, then that person uh, <coughs> won't press charges on the cops. It's not like law and order. You know, those people run for office. And so, you know, you have that race and, you know, you got African-American qualified woman running against uh, uh, a the young lady that's been in there for 27 years and a lot of things been going on. So a lot of black folks as well as white folks, uh, you know, <laughs> rallying up to get get behind this young lady named, Ms. named Melba. Uh, but we just, you know, for us, you know, in Miami, it, it's just a matter of getting new government in place, which we're going to get because a lot of people turned out, got some great mm-hmm. candidates. And then at the same time, uh, the state needs to pass the law to to um, to give tax credits for the entertainment industry, movie industry, so we can compete with places like, like Atlanta as far as uh, getting some of those movie dollars and putting some studios here at the same time to be able to have African-Americans here uh, uh, income go up because the average income for African-Americans in Miami is uh, $21,000. And if you bring the industry here, then that average income probably end up going up to about sixty dollars uh, $50,000. Now, people, again, the reason that I brought Luke on here is because he dropped the chance. And I want you to clearly listen to what he's saying. And I'm going to put this back up for rebroadcast so you can hear everything he said. Go back and listen to it because, again, who you vote for is going to dictate if something goes wrong, what's, what the response is going to be. So if you vote for somebody and you vote for you voting, you don't know who you're voting for. You vote for a state attorney that's really not down for you. When something goes wrong, you can't go to that state attorney. But if you vote somebody in that you know is fair, right, and just, when that happens, you have a chance of getting more of an outcome that you wish to have. So that's 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 just a note on that. You know, I wanted to ask you, because again, like I said, I look at your Instagram all the time. Where do you think this country took a turn for the worse? Is there a time? Is there a situation? Is there a, an event that took this country and just turned it in the next in the in like a crazy direction. Well, the country been going in a, in, a, in in my opinion, it's, go, it's been going in a bad direction uh, for years. Uh, you know, it just you know my uncle always told me he said you know you know my great uncle he was like yeah we was enslaved we came out of slavery into what we in right now discrimination which we are separated from everybody and he would tell me he say well in your generation they're gonna put them invisible chains on you he was like they're gonna make you think that that uh that you are free but you're not necessarily gonna be free you know what i'm saying so he would then say but at the end of the day the guys who the the, the black man and black woman who's free then they're gonna be woke and if you woke 
then they could never put them chains on you. So you gotta be sleeping on to put the chains on you. So for the longest, for the longest we have been we have been used as a people. Uh you know, we have been used and abused by as a people. They've always picked certain people, uh, African Americans, out of the group, and they they created our leaders. They created our leaders after Malcolm and Martin and H. Rap Brown and and all those brothers. They created our leaders using using the media platform. They said this guy is your leader, and they posted them all over. Uh, TV and gave them all the great awards and you know you didn't know that you were actually being programmed and saying that this guy's your leader so they made they made our leaders whether it was in the music industry whether it was in the television industry uh, te- uh, you name it uh, whether uh, political industry they made they manufactured our leaders so with them manufacturing our leaders they were able to use those individuals to suppress our message as well as suppress our community. So when you have a situation like a Colin Kaepernick, uh, that tells you right then, you know, I'm sitting there watching the play because I'm the outspoken guy. I'm, you know, I'm the black man that, 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 that band in the USA. I'm, I'm the black man that, you know, that I, you know, shit, I couldn't get a major record deal even when I was selling millions of records because I'm just for our people. I'm, I'm creating so that our people can benefit, you know, and they didn't like that. They didn't like that. The fact that I'm loop records and then all these young guys going back and say, we want our own record company. So change the whole business. But the, the, the point is, the point that I'm making, when you stand out for something and like I tell people, all the time, I mean, it was, I mean, when you look at the picture of Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, uh, and uh, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and you look at those, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, it's the same picture of them, uh, of them fighting on behalf of Muhammad Ali when they tried to put him in jail because he, you know, because he didn't go to the war because he didn't believe in the war. So it's the same picture that you should have right now today. And so the country took a turn the country was taking a turn for the worse because they post a child Oprah as our leader. They post a child, you know, all these other different African-American entertainers and stars, and they made them our leaders. But on the surface, we know it was all bullshit. And so when you, you, when you fast forward to now, then you get to uh, George Floyd. And you see what happens to George Floyd. This had already been happening. Trayvon Martin, the gentleman in New York, uh, uh, California, Minneapolis, all these things have always been happening. They never gave us any respect because they know if we ever, when, when we ever got out of hand, uh, when we ever protest or uh, had a problem, they would go find one of these token black people and post them up, bring them into the community and say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, cool the people down. So we started noticing that it was a lot of people that were fronts. And so right now, you know, you have, you know, which is one of the most beautiful, it's the, the, the most beautiful is storm that you could imagine, a pandemic and, and, uh, and these people doing the same thing, killing, lynching black people in Brunswick, Georgia, and killing black men uh, in Minnesota. It's like the perfect storm. Everybody's home, no entertainment, no music, no concert, no park, nothing to do, no, no sports. And you see that. And so now, now the world wakes up. 
and then at the end of the day, they can't go and parade those same people in the front of us that they, we gave them an opportunity. We gave them an opportunity to, to straighten it out and they didn't straighten it out because they used the same tactics. Go get a rapper, take the rapper, and then the rapper go to the black community and say, it's okay, it's okay, but you still don't change your ways. Go uh, go get the, the TV star and say, it's okay, it's okay, but you don't change your ways. You just, you know, oh, we'll give you a couple hundred thousand dollars to donate to some kid programs, but the people wasn't, wasn't buying it, Scoop. And so now the people are fighting back. And so they can't bring those same people uh, to us. They got to make change, you know? And so that's why you see in the world make change. So I say it's been fucked up for a long time uh, and they weren't giving us no respect because if you were a black man and you had a voice and you spoke out against certain things, then they just dismiss you. They blackball you, you know? And that's what was going on now. It ain't happening right now. And they listening right now. And it's our opportunity to do what we got to do. Do you do you think that this is a pandemic or a pandemic? I think it's a. I think it's it's a combination of the two. You know, I, I look at, you know, I look at where we at, and you know, it's, you know, you know, it's a propaganda, the propaganda machine is always working. You know, uh, I look at it from the standpoint. You know, I see I got friends that have caught the virus uh, at the end of the day I, we all know when you do the research and do the numbers the flu is still winning this is flu season so is is every case that they're considering corona the flu or corona you follow what I'm saying so in that standpoint so you have a disease yes you got corona I, I believe that there's corona out there and, and people are dying because I know people that, that are dying uh but at the same time, the adjustments came within the government because they didn't know how to handle it. Obviously, Trump didn't know how to handle it. But then what Trump did, like any other businessman, made the adjustments uh, to it. And how can I get paid out of it? So right now, all these governors and all these municipalities are using it as a, as a, as a way to get paid. They are putting tons of trillions of dollars into the banks. The banks ain't forgiving uh, a mortgage and, and, and car notes and, and loans, anything like that. They still asking for their money. Yeah, they got a moratorium on it. But then when when they... Uh, it's over, bro. It's over, Luke. It's over. People going to lose. Yeah. People, people going to lose all this shit. You know, when they say, okay, it's no more state of emergency. People who haven't been paying their rent, they're going to lose. They, they're going to get their shit foreclosed on, cars and everything. The, the tow truck's going to be taking everybody's cars because they ain't going to be able to pay for it because at the end of the day, you can't be able to pay the mortgage. You can't be able to pay the rent. You can't be able to pay it all because you're not working. But at the same time, the banks got all the money and no money is going to... Uh, you know, they say they're giving all this money and now all these stories are coming out with all these Trump homeboys uh, and all these Republicans who own businesses got three million, two million. And all his friends are, have have raped the system for the money. And so they, they it, it was a money grab at the end of the day. Yes, it was, it was a pandemic, but then it became a money grab. And then at the same time, not dealing with the pandemic, you still now have people in a bad situation. Like I feel sorry for our state. Because we're in hurricane season right now, and any moment right now, and it's hot as hell. It would get hot like this nine times ten. If you 
from here. You know that it's a hurricane to be here in a second, and I, 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 it's just going to be bad when the hurricane hit and the trees fall on the house and the lights cut off, and we become in this serious state of emergency. And people got coronavirus and they can't get get help. The hospitals then going to get overcrowded. It's going to be bad around here. So I'm just praying that ain't no hurricane hit us in this whole situation. Now, now, because you were you were definitely critical of the governor, the mayor, everything. If Luke was in charge, Mayor Luke, Governor Luke, whatever Luke, what would you do right now to to, to straighten out everything with this pandemic? What, what would your response be? What would you have done? What would your plan have done? Well, the thing is, I mean, you got to look at it like you know Miami, Miami, you know. Florida in itself, when you look at the state of Florida, the state of Florida, just like, just, it's no different than New York, uh, California. There's areas, like you know, in New York, that are like rural areas, ain't nobody going there. People are coming to Manhattan, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. People flying in to go to Manhattan to do business, or to be tourists. So you have, that was a tourist destination. Miami is a tourist destination, you know? We don't have four, Fortune 500 companies. We don't have Wall Street here. Our Fortune 500 company is the beaches, the clubs, the parties, the whole the whole atmosphere of Miami. You know, that's why we got tons of hotels. And how we make our money is through tourism dollars. So if I'm the mayor of Miami, and I said this in, in, a, in a column that I did, because uh, I write for the New Times, uh, I, did, I said, look, you know, I, I always call them Banana Republic because they don't know exactly what to do. There's no playbook for this. And so basically, it's like, look, your tourist destination, number one, our clubs in Miami close 5 o'clock in the morning, unlike any other uh, cities around the country. And then we have certain areas where the clubs open 24 hours. So then now you got, and then you got the strip clubs, you know, tons of strip clubs on every block where they get straight naked and guys and girls is sitting there waiting to go into the strip club. So you don't open those things up right now. I mean, and then you say, oh, we're going to open up a strip club and then we want you to be six feet apart. You're not going to be, that's not going to happen. So, and so here these idiots, uh, Scoop, say, okay, well, you can't get a lap dance after 12 o'clock. I'm like, are we, are we, we are in a fucking banana river. This the mayor saying this on the news. So I'm saying, I'm saying, okay, here's the thing. You got people coming into Miami. It's, you know, we're an international city. You know, our airport is sitting there. A lot of, you know, we're the, we're the gateway to the islands. So what ends up happening? You come here, you get checked and come in here. If you got the fever or whatever, no different than when you're coming back from customs, treat it like that. If you're coming from a hotbed city where right. they have, tons of virus, then you automatically put those people in quarantine for 14 days. Okay, well you cut the clubs off, you gotta go home at 2 o'clock. 30% occupancy, so these restaurants and everything open up and be able to make some money right now. Uh, Tell the people it's mandatory to put masks on, but then when it comes to the state, you can't regulate every other part of the state the same way. Certain areas, if they're tourist destinations and they have these people coming in from all over the world, then you have to treat them more different than you treating someplace like Ocala. It's nobody going mm-hmm. to fucking Ocala. You know what I'm saying? Right. Going, ain't no beach in Ocala. number of bushes and 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 that's, <laughs> and that's it. So it's more of you know using co- the common sense approach 
But then, uh, like I say, it's a big money grab. Everybody is making money off masks. The government and all, you know, the, the governor and his office is regulating the mask game, the the the, the machine game, the, the gowns. You got to go through their office to purchase this stuff. They getting money from the federal government. Trump is giving our governor because he down with our governor. Whatever he do, so everybody is getting paid off this shit. And so, but at the end of the day, it's just stacking up the bills of the people. And eventually, uh, the people are going to suffer. They definitely going to suffer. The last thing I want to ask you about, because it's one of the things that I always follow you for and listen to your insight on, is about sports and coaching. You you have you you coach in like well you were a high school coach for a minute, but where you really have done your work is in the youth league, right? Yeah, I'm I'm still a high school coach. This this will be my uh, if we get a season off. This will be like my. 16th year, I think about 16 years. I mean, I started my the, the coaching part of it. I started my youth program, Liberty City Optimist. This is our 30th anniversary. Yep. And so, you know, once my career kind of died down, I always said, I'm going to go back to the park and start coaching because that's what I did. I played football. You know, and I played football and, you know, I got busted Miami South Beach, which y'all call it South Beach. We call it Miami Beach. I got bust over there because I was kind of good and they paid me to go over there. But at the same time, I wasn't getting the education that I needed to get. So I always said, if I ever get two cents over my lunch money, I'm going to start my own youth program, which I did. And we got a lot of great players to come out of the program from. Yeah, like who? Like who? Who are some of the names that we know that came out of that program? Chad Johnson came out of the program. Duke Johnson, mm-hmm. Devontae Friedman, Devontae Davis, starting middle linebacker for uh, for uh, 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 Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You had Daryl Sharpton Jr. You had Willis McGahee. You had, I mean, tons of guys. Uh, Antonio Bryant, who played for the Cowboys. Uh Lot, lot of uh, Devontae Freeman who played for the Falcons. Yeah, a oh, lot. Yeah, a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of players, and you know, a lot of national championships at our program. Uh, but then I, and I eventually ended up start, you know, coaching in high school because I wanted to make sure our kids get the opportunity to to go to college, and so. I've been doing that for like 15 years now. We still got the program run that. That's running good. Uh, we just built a $6 million gymnasium. And this year we're going to open up. We just finished building a $3 million football stadium at the park. That should open up. It's already done, you know, when the pandemic is over with. But then at the same time, we, uh, you know, at the high school, we built a, a turf field with Adidas at the high school. Just open that up during Super Bowl time. So, uh, you know, we just use it. We use the football for these kids to be able to get an education. You know, I tell them all the time, man, it's 1.1% of the chance for you to be able to make it to the NFL. You know, uh, it's only 1,200 jobs in the NFL. It's only 100 and, what, 240 jobs in the NBA. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, use the opportunity to get an education. You know, and if you do go to the NFL, your life expectancy is three years and you're done. Mm-hmm. Now, what is it that makes Florida the place that brings out so many good players? What is it What is it about Florida? I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. It's like, I mean, like, Florida is like, it's like, uh, I, the, the way I kind of describe it is, is, it's like the Rucker, to basketball to New York 
and football mm-hmm. is to Florida. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's a rite of passage. You play football first. It's God's country. And then the, the when you get to Miami, Miami is the back of football. Uh, in, in the state of Florida, we have more more NFL players in the state of Florida than any state in the entire uh, country. Uh, Thank you. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, when, when you get deep down in Miami, when you get to Miami, and more so you shrink it to Liberty City, which is from County Line to Flagler Street, like that's where you get your Amari Coopers, your, your, your all your, you get all the superstars. So I just named you some guys that was on our team, but then now you got the Andre Johnsons. You got, you got all kind. you got, it gets thicker than fish grease. You know, the William Josephs who played for the New York Giants, all these people, you know, it gets real thick when you get into Liberty City. So in Liberty, in the, in the six mile radius of my youth program, there's no other city in America that has that has the we we lead this, we lead every city in America with the most football players in a six mile radius in the NFL and the most in in the history of football that came out of that one that one area. I mean, like you got. You, you you got Amari Coopers and all these type of people. And, I mean, high-level guys, and the football gets more tougher when you get to Liberty City versus any other part of Miami, you know, any other part of the state. Like, for instance, all the teams from Liberty City went and won all the state championships this year. They changed the, the boundaries, and we just beat the shit out of everybody. And so they'll probably change the rules after this year, but, you know, so that don't happen again, but that's it's the mecca of football, and I mean it's every day. It's all year round. I mean the weather presents itself. Kids play football here all year round. It's, they don't too much play basketball. We don't have no gyms, uh, uh, so it's not you know the the Latinos play a lot of baseball. We used to play a lot of baseball. We need to get back into it, but it's constant football year round, and and it's very very competitive. It's black and blue. Any little league game. With four and five yos, it'll be two thousand people out there screaming and hollering, you know. And and the grandmothers and the mamas, if you if you ain't close mm-hmm. from heart, it ain't recreation school. It's not recreation. You get motherfucked if you're five years old. That motherfucker dropped the ball, and then it's the grandmama saying, "You damn right," and tell his sorry ass coach. So it is hardcore football. It's not recreation under no circumstances. And and I I think uh, you know. That's why we probably produce the best players in the world right out of this uh, little city. And they started four years old. No different than Chinese gymnastics. And it's, mm-hmm. it is, you can see the kids. You can see. I mean, they know the game at four years old. So that that's how serious it is. Final question. You, I was looking at one of your posts this week, and you were critical of the NFL, the NBA, and ESPN. And you said that you know, you kind of took a shot at ESPN because you said that all of the other conferences, the ACC and the SEC and all of those people get the big million dollar, billion dollar contracts, but H, uh, H, uh, historically black colleges and universities and people like that get the BS contracts. And I agreed with you, but I also said to myself, is that an issue of the player? Because I forget, what, what's, what's the kid that's the number 20, uh, he's the number 20 prospect that just went to Howard. I uh, forget his name. 
Basketball player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basketball player. If if all of the great talent went to the HBCUs, wouldn't ESPN be giving them the billion dollar deals? Because you got the the the, the, the money goes where the talent flows, right? Yeah. Well, what what you have is what you have is a combination of the two. So let me let me take you back. Uh, let me take you back to the old days when the first African Americans ended up going to uh, state colleges. When I forget the young man name, uh, when he was brought in, him and the young girl, and they went to University of Mississippi, and and they went in and. And they had to have the National Guards and everybody standing there. What what happened out of that? And like I say, these people always are making adjustments. You know, you know, racist people are always making adjustments. I I won't say black and white people. It's more racist people make adjustments to 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 keep to keep theirs to the for their race to survive over our race. You know, it's a race war. And so when you look at all the historical black colleges. One thing you have in common, Florida State, right around the corner from Florida State is Florida A&M. University of Auburn, right around the corner, there's Tuskegee. You know, uh, LSU, right around the corner, it's another black college. So what they did is they made the adjustments and they put the black colleges not too far from the black, from the white colleges. So when the white colleges recruited the African-American players, then they didn't hang out at the white college. They hung out at the black college. And so that's number one. That, that's number one. Number two is this. You have most of these colleges are state colleges. For instance, Florida State is a state college. Uh, Florida a and is a state college. Florida State gets, in, in Florida, they get more money than Florida a and and Bethune-Cookman College combined at one university. So the, the amount of money that the state is giving them is totally different. So then now fast forward to my comment about ESPN, you have conferences. ESPN gives billions of dollars to the ACC conference. They give billions of dollars to the, to the SEC conference, Conference USA, and so on and so on. With that money, if I give, if I give Fat Man Scoop Conference $5 billion, you're going to then divide that within the teams that are in your conference. So you divide the TV money up, and then now you then put that money into your facilities, right? Mm -hmm. You're putting that into your basketball facilities, your, your, your baseball, your football, football and, and basketball is the big, is the main thing. So you're putting that into your facilities, you're hiring and paying coaches more money. And then at the same time, you, you, you're being able to recruit, you're getting on private jets when everybody's riding in vans and shit. Your team is being treated. You're getting the best nutrition, the best technology, and everything in the world. And so now when you bring an African-American kid who, who's a five-star five kid, a four-star kid, uh, he goes to that facility versus going to the black college. Now, for the black college, they, I mean, Florida and m just left the MEAC and went to the SWAC conference, which is the, another mm -hmm. black conference. And they got $1.4 million to go to the SWAC. That's peanuts. So if you're giving every team in the SWAC $1.4 million and just imagine what the MEAC was paying them. So the MEAC was paying them a half a million dollars. So you're talking about half a million dollars to go into your whole overall sports program because you don't have a TV contract. 
You don't have major sponsors. And so I say this to ESPN. It's a way to hold down African-American schools so that they don't compete with the white schools. So therefore, when you bring your kid to black college, Florida and them, uh, uh, spell, uh, not Spelman, but uh, uh, Howard or something like that. And the kid look around at the facilities and you look and the parent look at the facilities and they say, well, the education is good, but this is not going to help my son get to the next level. Because I'm looking at, it's like apples and oranges. It's like you go on to, into a $5 million, uh, $10 million house versus going to, uh, into, the, into the projects. You know what I'm saying? And that's how I look. So the kids automatically gravitate to that. So I say ESPN is the main part of that. And then another thing ESPN does, they take African-American games and they put the worst game on TV with the lowest attendance. You know, you have some big games, Alabama A&M, Alabama State, Rivalry, Florida A&M, uh, Bethune-Cookman, where they fill up the stadium, 80,000 people. You know, so you have these games every weekend that you could televise, but you choose to televise the games to give the worst depiction of African-American football. So kids are looking at that. I don't want to go there. They ain't got but 20 people in the stands, and they're showing this game on a Tuesday where kids are in school and ain't no parents could then get to the game. So they do that kind of stuff. And But, again, the main thing is if they took the money, and that's why I said LeBron James and all these guys, that a great opportunity. That they have a great opportunity to be able to do something special for African American schools. Because I guarantee you, if African, if the playing field again, if the playing field was easy, even, and they were getting, they were getting million dollar contracts, and they they could put into their facility, they could compete against these white schools because they have more to offer than the, than the white school. I mean, they're using black kids. And black and white college that you can't find in a, in a power five. You can't find a, a black quarterback coach, maybe one. You can't find a black offensive coordinator. You got three, maybe two or three black head coaches in all the power five schools and damn near 400, which is ridiculous. You know, and they do ridiculous things when they come to African-American players. So I, I say that to these guys. I'm very critical of them. I'm critical of the Jay-Z's of the world. When you have the opportunity to be able to sit down, you can could, you could make some real change uh, when it comes to this NFL and, and, and how, they, how they're treating African-American schools and African-American players. You, you don't believe that, Jay? Because, I, I, you know, listen, I'm, I'm just an, an observer. I'm not that deep in the NFL. I don't have contacts like that, so I don't know who's doing what. I can only look as an observer. You don't think that Jay is doing anything to help? I think, you know, uh, again, I love the brother to death. That's that's my guy. You know, I should I seen him when he was just hanging out with Big, you know, and hanging out with all of us when he was before he was uh big time. So I love everything that he's doing and what he's at. But I think he could I think he could do a lot more. I think he I think he could do a lot. I think he'd do a lot more with his platform and and his voice uh with the NFL. You know, and, and which right now the NFL is being forced to do more. Um, you know, and I had a conversation with him. You know, me and him talk. You know, when they announced the halftime performers in Miami, and I was like, "It's a shame they don't have nobody from Miami performing." You know, not necessarily me. I, I don't think my audience is good for that. You know, but you got a whole bunch of other guys like Ross and 
and all these other people need to be, yeah, Pitbull, you need to be on stage. But you brought in the game? You yeah. Brought in, I, you brought in the game. I, I was like, so, you know, I'm like, there's a lot more he could do with his platform, you know. And right now, being at where we're at right now, you know, uh, even with that whole Colin Kaepernick thing, you know, we need, we need, we needed. I thought he needed to put down on them to to not have them blackball him. But everything happens for a reason, you know. That's where we're at right now. So we're past blackballing. We're past taking a knee. Same thing with the NBA. You know, I I know LeBron good, and I've said to him quite a few times. They need to go back and play, pay uh, uh, Abdul, and they need to pay Craig Hodges their back pay because. Those guys were blackballed before Kaepernick in the NBA when Craig Hodges gave, and I just did a podcast with him when he gave the the president a letter saying black people are being suppressed, and he had a dashiki on when he when he visited the White House. I thought it was, that was a, a a real important moment that that didn't show up in the Last Dance, which which I thought Michael Jordan dropped the ball on that because that was a more significant story than anything. Uh, then a lot of other things that happened in there, but he didn't show that. So there's a lot of things that these guys need to do, but we're at a place right now where, you know, you making a donation to my foundation, we passed that. You know, and I think Jay has a platform, has an opportunity uh, to be able to tell them, look, it's, right now we passed the taking a knee. Y'all all right with us taking a knee. I know because y'all worry about us, people not uh, – uh, subscribing to the product right now, especially right now when people can't go to the game. So you need to do more. You need We need black ownership. We need at least two black teams owned by black people and not the usual suspects or the Oprahs and all that, you know, whether it's black group or whatever it may be. We need black ownership in the NBA. We need black ownership in Major League Baseball. That's where we're at right now, in my opinion. You know, we, we you know, I think they, they, it's an insult when they say they're going to make donations to our programs and uh, uh, initiatives for black people and all that. If you ain't giving historical black colleges ten, ten, uh, a billion dollars, if you ain't giving them a billion dollars, then you ain't doing shit. You know, and that's just my opinion. Give them a billion dollars, whatever is equivalent, twenty uh, percent uh, of one of your one of your teams are worth. Now we're talking, so we could level the playing field. And if you ain't giving us uh, ownership, at least two teams in each league, then what are we talking about? You know. So I think that's where we at right now, and I think that's what Jay Z and anybody else need to be pushing toward that initiative because. Taking a knee and giving Kaepernick or anybody a shot that you didn't screwed over, we way past that. Right. So, would you, who would you like to see? Who, who who's a black man or a person of color that you like to see on a team? I, I think the the on a team. I think you got some you got some great guys. You know, you got some great real 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 black men. You know, not you know some self-made men and I, and I think it could be done with groups it could be done I think it would be better to be done with groups I mean you like you get a group like Bob Johnson Bob Johnson know us better than anybody a group like him uh in a group of guys that ain't Bob Johnson, out. Huh? Cool. Bob, Bob Johnson is BET people so you know he created BET go ahead yeah uh, uh, groups like Bob and other groups of former players who made good money in the league you know, uh, situations like that, you know, in the NBA groups, groups of people 
who where it ain't no front situation. You know, there's a I mean the guy most people don't even know uh the red cup that everybody drinks. It's a black man that owns that. I forget what his name. It's a black man owns that company. And he's a fucking billionaire. He tried to go and get, he tried to get an NFL team and they blocked him. He's out of Denver, Colorado. So we have black billionaires. Everybody black is not poor. And everybody black is not broke. So there's quite a, there's, there's, there's some black billionaires that are able to, to, to partner up and be able to own a team and that's what they need they need to they need to do that they need to do that and then have some of these former players be heavily involved and get some ownership within those uh some of those teams yeah I mean you know hey if you're getting a hundred million two hundred million dollars and you're on it uh, and you're on an NBA team there's no reason in the world why you shouldn't own a piece of that team you know part of your deal should be owning a piece of that NBA team because that's totally different. Than, than uh, football. I mean, NBA is, they don't have a helmet on. So the product is into the players. The players is the product. You know, in the NFL, is a helmet and a logo, and that's what you're buying into. And so that's what we had now. I think if we get anything less than that, then we settling for nothing. You know, if we get anything, then then uh, they'll be playing. Uh, they'll be playing these uh, sports figures from here to the cows come in. They'll be playing them. They'll be playing them like they're slaves because it is a. I mean, right now it's a, it's a slave business, and they're taking advantage of these guys. And they, you know, they create they create contracts where they get rid of them and recycle them in three years, throw them in the garbage, and bring some new brothers in. Well, is, is there two questions, and then and then we're done. Number one. Has anybody from the NFL spoken to you? And number two, why is it that football is the only league where they can they can kind of like just get rid of you and, and keep it moving? They can't do that in any other sport. They can't do that. But in football, they can just write you off. Well, football, let me tell you this here. Football, most most football players, they don't really pay attention. Most, you know, some. Like, I'll give you an example. Only 25% of the players voted on the new collective bargaining agreement this year. They, The collective bargaining agreement is the contract which their, their union negotiates with the league. And only 25% of the players even voted on it. So that means the rest, that means 75% of the league don't even have any idea that, that, that it was a deal going, they knew, probably knew, but then at the same time, at the same time, you go into who's their representative because their representative needs to be the one to tell you that there's a vote and explain to you what the deal is on the table so you don't be put in a situation where you get, okay, uh, you come into the league and in and, and three years you're out of the league. And they just recite. They're just bringing another person to replace you. And so they changed the collective bargaining agreement uh, the the uh, the last time, which allowed them to uh, get rid of players as fast as they was getting rid of players. Because I don't think guys was paying attention. And now it's worse. And so it's more like a slave mentality. You know, back in the days, if a guy was a first round draft pick, he he the negotiation of a first round draft pick really set the standards of what everybody else get. Right now in the NFL, if a guy first-round draft pick, he's going to get the same money that the first-round draft pick got last year. 
If you was a, mm. if you was a seventy fifth pick in the draft, you're gonna get the same amount of money the seventy seventy fifth pick draft got last year. No different. Before, if you were uh, first round draft pick, first pick, pick in the top ten, that's where you had guys holding out, and so they just the the you got to think about it. If these guys don't know what they're what what they're agreeing on, who's running it? So Roger Goodell's running it. What ends up happening? You got four agents that pretty much control four. that control the entire, all of the players. They represent all the players. Why these guys get caught up in that sucker game, I don't know. They go for the okey-doke. You know, one guy represents 120 guys, another guy represents another 100 guys. And so these guys are not telling these guys what the deal is. So the NFL is ultimately negotiating with those four agents. They're negotiating with those four agents, and those four agents are telling, uh, picking and choosing who go and vote, uh, who they give the information to. And so that's why you have a slave mentality within the NFL. And and again, and again, you got to understand, which I, I respect them all, all the world, white people have to make sure they create generational wealth for themselves and be able to keep controlling. These guys keep calling me, keep controlling the situation and the narrative. So these four agents, how they can continue eating and being able to go into new black kids' houses, they, I mean, they'll cut a deal with the NFL that don't benefit the player. And so that's what you have right now. You know, but again, when you look at NBA, it's totally different. It's totally different. Them guys are well-respected. Them guys are going up in there and, you know, they're demanding a lot. They have, they have guaranteed contracts. And the NFL, if you're a quarterback, you're, you're, you're coming else, you know, uh, uh, anything else is, you know, pretty much not guaranteed. So, you know, signing bonuses and you have a certain amount uh, of, of money that's guaranteed. But in the NBA, your entire contract is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Ah. Same thing, Major League Baseball. You, you, bro, you didn't give me too much, man. <laughs> next time, brother. Next time, I, I got you, baby. The phone is. You could give me this all day. I know you we can we could go. Me. I mean, anytime, anytime. You, we, we'll do a part two, brother, because it's too much knowledge. My head is hurting. <laughs> I, I, I thank you for coming through. I'm gonna DM you because I got some things to say to you on the side. We'll talk later, brother. I love you, man. Hey, I love you too, my brother. Make Noise with Fat Man Scoop is produced by myself alongside Raj Kachetcha and the team at creativecontentagency.com. Please support this podcast by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love that. And by following this podcast on Spotify and sharing links to episodes you enjoy with your friends. Do it. You can also email the show via podcast at fatmanscoop.com. I answer that. Or you can DM me at Fat Man Scoop. Yes, I answer DMs.